Gold in the Sky, Part Two of Five Stories by Alan Norse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. For a moment, neither of the boys could say anything at all. From the time they had learned to talk, they had heard stories and tales that the miners and prospectors told about the big strike, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, the wonderful, elusive goal of every man who had ever taken a ship into the asteroid belt. For almost a hundred and fifty years, since the earliest days of space exploration, there had been miners prospecting the asteroids. A few hundred others, ranging in size from ten to a hundred miles in diameter, had been charted and followed in their orbits by the observatories, first from the Earth's airless moon and then from Mars. There were tens of thousands more that had never been charted. Together they made up the asteroid belt, spread out in space like a broad road around the sun, echoing the age-old call of the Bonanza for there was wealth in the asteroids wealth beyond a man's wildest dreams if only he could find it earth with its depleted iron ranges its exhausted tin and copper mines and its burgeoning population was hungry for metal earth needed steel tin nickel and zinc more than anything earth needed ruthenium the rare earth catalyst that made the huge solar energy converters possible mars was rich in the ores of these metals but the ores were buried deep in the ground the cost of mining them and of lifting the heavy ore from mars gravitational field and carrying it to earth was prohibitive only the finest carbon steel and the radioactive metals smelted and purified on mars and transported to earth could be made profitable but from the asteroid belt it was a different story there was no gravity to fight on the tiny asteroids on these chunks of debris the metals lay close to the surface easy to mine ships orbiting the belt could fill their holds with their precious metal cargoes and transfer them in space to the interplanetary orbit ships spinning back toward earth it was hard work and a dangerous work but most of the ore was low grade and brought little return but always there was the lore of the big strike the load of almost pure metal that could bring a fortune back to the man who found it a few such strikes had been made forty years before a single claim had brought its owner seventeen million dollars in two years a dozen other men had stumbled onto fortunes in the belt but such metal-rich fragments were grains of sand in a mighty river for every man who found one a thousand others spent years looking and then perished in the fruitless search and now johnny coombs was telling them that their father had been one of that incredible few you really think dad hit a bonanza out there that's what i said did you see it with your own eyes no you weren't even out there with him no then why are you so sure he found something because he told me so johnny coombs said quietly the boys looked at each other he actually said he'd found a rich load tom asked eagerly not exactly johnny said matter of fact he never actually told me what he'd found he needed somebody to sign aboard the scavenger with him in order to get a clearance to blast off but he never did plan to take me out there with him i can't take you now johnny he told me i've found something out there but i've got to work it alone for a while i asked him what he'd found and he just gave me that funny little grin of his and said never mind what it is it's big enough for both of us you just keep your mouth shut and you'll find out soon enough and then he wouldn't say another word until we were homing in on the shuttle ship to drop me off. Johnny finished his coffee and pushed the cup aside. I knew he wasn't joking. He was excited, and I think he was scared too. 
just before i left him he said there's one other thing johnny things might not work out quite the way i figure them and if they don't make sure the twins know what i've told you i told him i would and headed back that was the last i heard from him until the patrol ship found him floating in space with a torn open suit and a ruined scooter floating a few miles away do you think that jupiter equilateral knew that dad had found something tom asked who knows i'm sure that he never told them but it's awful hard to keep a secret like that and they sound awful eager to buy that rig johnny coombs said yes and it doesn't make sense i mean if they're responsible for dad's accident why didn't they just check in for him on schedule and then quietly bring in their rig to jump the claim maybe they couldn't find it johnny said and if they'd killed your dad they wouldn't have dared hang around very long right then even if they'd kept the signal going a patrol ship might have come into the region any time and if a u.n patrol ship ever caught them working a dead man's claim without reporting the dead man the suit would really start to leak johnny shook his head remember your dad had a dozen claims out there they might have had to scout the whole works to find the right one much easier to do it out in the open with your signatures on a claim transfer but one thing is sure if they knew what roger had found out there and where it was tawney would never be offering you triple price for the rig then whatever dad found is still out there tom said i'll bet my last dime on it there might even be something to show that the accident wasn't an accident tom went on something even the major would have to admit was evidence johnny coombs pursed his lip looking up at tom might be he conceded well what are we waiting for we turned tawney's offer down he might be sending a crew out there to jump the claim right now if he hasn't already johnny said then we've got to get out there and johnny turned to greg you could pilot us out and handle the navigation as for tom he could get stuck all over the place and keep us busy just taking care of him greg said sourly you and me yes not tom you don't know that boy in a spaceship tom started to his feet glaring at his brother that's got nothing to do with it it's true isn't it you'd be a big help out there johnny looked at tom you always get sick in free fall look let's be reasonable greg said you just be in the way there are plenty of things you could do right here and johnny and i could handle the rig alone tom faced his brother angrily if you think i'm going to stay here and keep myself company you're crazy he said this is one show you're not going to run so just quit trying if you go out there i go greg shuddered okay twin it's your stomach not mine then let me worry about it i hope johnny said that that's the worst we have to worry about let's get started planning time was the factor uppermost in their minds they knew that even under the best of conditions it could take weeks to outfit and prepare for a run out into the belt a ship had to be leased and fueled there were supplies to lay in there was the problem of clearance to take care of claims to be verified and spotted orbit coordinates to be computed and checked a thousand details to be dealt with any one of which might delay embarkation from an hour to a day or more it was not surprising that tom and greg were dubious when johnny told them that they could be ready to clear ground in less than twenty-four hours even knowing that merrill tawney might have already had a mining crew at work on roger hunter's claims they could not believe that the red tape of preparation and clearance could be cut away so swiftly they underestimated johnny coombs six hours after he left them he was back with a signed lease giving them the use of a scout ship and fuel to take them out to the belt and back again the ship was in the sun lake city racks waiting for them whenever they were ready 
"'What kind of ship?' Greg wanted to know. "'A Class Three Flying Dutchman with overhauled atomics and hydrazine side jets,' Johnny said, waving the transfer order. "'Think you can fly it?' Greg whistled. "'Can I? I trained in a Dutchman. Just about the fastest scooter there is. What condition?' lousy but it's fueled with six weeks supplies in the hold and it doesn't cost us a cent courtesy of a friend you'll have to check it over but it'll do they inspected the ship a weather-beaten scouter that looked like a relic of the nineties inside there were signs of many refittings and overhauls but the atomics were well shielded and it carried a surprising chemical fuel auxiliary for the cabin size greg disappeared into the engine room and tom and johnny left him testing valves and circuits while they headed down to the u.n registry office in the control tower on the way johnny outlined the remaining outfitting steps tom would be responsible for getting the clearance permit through registry Johnny would check out all supplies and then contact the observatory for orbit coordinates of Roger Hunter's claims. "'I thought the orbits were mapped on the claim papers,' Tom said. "'I mean, every time an asteroid is claimed, the orbit has to be charted. That's right, but the orbit goes all the way around the sun. We know where the scavenger was when the patrol ship found her, but she's been traveling in orbit ever since.' the observatory computer will pinpoint her for us and chart a collision course so that we can cut out and meet her instead of trailing her for a week do you have the crew papers greg and i signed right here they were stepping off the ramp below the ship when a man loomed up out of the shadows it was a miner tom had never seen before johnny nodded as he approached any news jack quiet as a church the man said we'll be held up another eight hours at least johnny said don't go to sleep on us jack don't worry about us sleeping the man said grimly there's nobody round but yourselves so far except the clearance inspector johnny looked up sharply you check his papers and his prints he was all right johnny took tom's arm and they headed through the gate toward the control tower i guess i'm just naturally suspicious he grinned but i'd sure hate to have a broken cutoff switch or a fuel valve go out of whack at just the wrong moment you think tawny would dare to try something here tom said never hurts to check we've got our hands full for a few hours getting set so i just ask my friends to keep an eye on things always did say that a man who's going to gamble is smart to cover his bets at the control tower they parted and tom walked into the clearance office johnny's watchman had startled him and for the first time he felt a chill of apprehension if they were right if this trip to the belt were not a wild goose chase from the very start then roger hunter's accident had been no accident at all Quite suddenly, Tom felt very thankful that Johnny Coombs had friends. "'I don't like it,' the Major said, facing Tom and Greg across the desk in the U.N. registry office below the control tower. "'You've got an idea in your heads, and you just won't listen to reason.' Somewhere above them, Tom heard the low-pitched rumble of a scout ship blasting from its launching rack. "'All we want to do is go out and work Dad's claim,' he said for the second time. I know perfectly well what you want to do, and that's why I told the people here to alert me if you tried to clear a ship. You don't know what you're doing, and I'm not going to sign those clearance papers. Why not? Greg said. Because you're going out there asking for trouble, that's why not. But you told us before there wasn't any trouble. Dad had an accident, that was all. So how could we get in trouble? The Major's face was an angry red. He started to say something, then stopped and scowled at them instead. They met his stare. Finally, he threw up his hands. All right, so I can't legally stop you, he said. But at least I can beg you to use your heads. You're wasting time and money on a foolish idea. 
you're walking into dangers and risks that you can't handle and i hate to see it happen mining in the belt is a good job for experienced men not rank novices johnny coombs is no novice no but he's lost his wits taking you two out there well are there any other dangers you have in mind once more the major searched for words and failed to find them no he sighed and you wouldn't listen if i did it seems everybody is warning us about how dangerous this trip is likely to be greg said quietly last night it was merrill tawney he offered to buy us out he was so eager for a deal that he offered us a fantastic price then johnny tells us that dad mined some rich ore when he was out there on his last trip but never got a chance to bring it in because of his his accident well until now i haven't been so sure dad didn't just have an accident but now i'm beginning to wonder too many people have been warning us you're determined to go out there then that's about right the major picked up the clearance papers glanced at them quickly and signed them all right you're cleared i hate to do it but i suppose i'd go with you if the law would let me and i'll tell you one thing if you can't find a single particle of evidence that will link jupiter equilateral or anybody else to your father's death i'll use all the power i have to break them he handed the papers back to tom but be careful because if jupiter equilateral is involved in it they're going to play dirty at the door he turned good trip and good luck tom folded the papers and stuck them thoughtfully into his pocket they met johnny coombs in the registry offices upstairs tom patted his pocket happily we're cleared in forty-five minutes he said johnny grinned then we're all set they headed up the ramp reached ground level and started out toward the launching racks at the far end of the field a powerful class one ranger one of jupiter equilateral scout fleet was settling down into its slot in a perfect landing maneuver the triangle and jay insignia gleamed brightly on her dark hull she was a rich luxurious looking ship many miners on mars could remember when jupiter equilateral had been nothing more than a tiny mining company working claims in the remote equilateral cluster of asteroids far out in jupiter's orbit gradually the company had grown and flourished accumulating wealth and power as it grew leaving behind it a thousand half-confirmed stories of cheating piracy murder and theft other small mining outfits had fallen by the wayside until now over two-thirds of all asteroid mining claims were held by a jupiter equilateral and the small independent miners were forced more and more to take what was left they reached the gate to the dutchman's launching slot and entered inside the ship tom and johnny strapped down while greg made his final check down on the engines gyro and wiring the cabin was a tiny vault with none of the spacious living room of the orbit ships tom leaned back in the acceleration cot and listened to the countdown signals that came at one-minute intervals now in the earphones he could hear the sporadic chatter between greg and the control tower no hint that this was anything but a routine blast-off but there was trouble ahead tom was certain of that everybody on mars was aware that roger hunter's sons were heading out into the belt to pick up where he'd left off greg had secured a leave of absence from project star jump unhappily granted even though his part in their program had already been disrupted even they had heard the rumors that were adrift and if there was trouble now they were on their own the asteroid belt was a wilderness untracked and unexplored and except for an almost insignificant fraction completely unknown if there was trouble out there there would be no one to help somewhere below the engines roared and tom felt the weight on his chest sudden and breathtaking they were on their way 
After all the tension of preparing for it, the trip out seemed interminable. They were all impatient to reach their destination. During blast-off and acceleration they had watched Mars dwindle into a tiny red dot, then seemed to stop altogether, and there was nothing to do but wait. For the first eight hours of free-fall, after the engines had cut out, Tom was violently ill. He fought it desperately, gripping the pills Johnny offered and trying to keep them down. Gradually the waves of nausea subsided, but it was a full twenty-four hours before Tom felt like stirring from his cot to take up the shipboard routine. And then there was nothing for him to do. Greg handled the navigation skillfully while Johnny kept radio contact and busied himself in the storeroom, so Tom spent hours at the view screen. On the second day he spotted a tiny chunk of rock that was unquestionably an asteroid moving swiftly toward them. It passed at a tangent ten thousand miles ahead of them, and Greg started work at the computer, feeding the data tapes that would ultimately guide the ship to its goal. Pinpointing a given spot in the asteroid belt was a gargantuan task, virtually impossible without the aid of the ship's computer to compute orbits, speeds, and distances. Tom spent more and more time at the viewscreen, searching out the blackness of space for more asteroid sightings. But except for an occasional tiny bit of debris hurtling by, he saw nothing but the changeless panorama of stars. Johnny Coombs found him there on the third day, and laughed at his sour expression. "'Gettin' impatient?' "'Just wondering when we'll reach the belt is all,' Tom said. Johnny chuckled. "'Hope you're not holding your breath. We've already been in the belt for the last forty-eight hours.' "'Then where are all the asteroids?' Tom said. Oh, they're here. You just won't see many of them. People always think there ought to be dozens of them around, like sheep on a hillside, but it doesn't work that way. Johnny peered at the screen. Of course, to an astronomer, the belt is just loaded, hundreds of thousands of chunks, all sizes from five hundred miles in diameter on down. But actually, those chunks are all tens of thousands of miles apart, and the belt looks just as empty as space between Mars and Earth. "'Well, I don't see how we're ever going to find one particular rock,' Tom said, watching the screen gloomily. "'It's not too hard. Every asteroid has its own orbit around the sun, and every one that's been registered as a claim has the orbit charted. The one we want isn't where it was when your dad's body was found. It's been traveling in its orbit ever since. But by figuring in the fourth dimension we can locate it.' Tom blinked. Fourth dimension?' "'Time,' Johnny Coombs said. If we just used the three linear dimensions, length, width, and depth, we'd end up at the place where the asteroid was. But that wouldn't help us much, because it's been moving in orbit ever since the patrol ship last pinpointed it. So we figure in a fourth dimension, the time that has passed since it was last spotted, and we can chart a collision course with it, figure out just where we'll have to be to meet it. It was the first time that the idea of time as a dimension had ever made any sense to Tom. They talked some more until Johnny started bringing in fifth and sixth dimensions, and problems of irrational space and hyperspace, and got even himself confused. Anyway, Tom said, I'm glad we've got a computer on board. And a navigator, Johnny added, don't sell your brother short. Fat chance of that, Greg would never stand for it. Johnny frowned. You lads don't like each other very much, do you? he said. Tom was silent for a moment, then looked away. We get along, I guess. Maybe, but sometimes just getting along isn't enough, especially when there's trouble. Give it a thought, when you've got a minute or two. Later, the three of them went over the computer results together, 
Johnny and Greg fed the navigation data into the ship's drive mechanism, checking and rechecking speeds and inclination angles. Already the Dutchman's orbital speed was matching the speed of Roger Hunter's asteroid, but the orbit had to be tracked so that they would arrive at the exact point in space to make contact. Tom was assigned to the view screen, and the long wait began. He spotted their destination point an hour before the computer had predicted contact. At first, a tiny pinpoint of reflected light in the scope, gradually resolving into two pinpoints, then three in a tiny cluster. Greg cut in the rear and lateral jets momentarily, stabilizing their contact course. The dots grew larger. Ten minutes later, Tom could see their goal clearly in the viewscreen, the place where Roger Hunter had died. It was neither large or small for an asteroid, an irregular chunk of rock and metal, perhaps five miles in diameter, lighted only by the dull reddish glow from the dime-sized sun. Like many such jagged chunks of debris that sprinkled the belt, this asteroid did not spin on any axis, but constantly presented the same face to the sun. Just off to the bright side of the orbit ship floated, stable in its orbit next to the big rock, but so small in comparison that it looked like a tiny glittering toy balloon and clamped on its rack on the orbit ship side, airlock to airlock, was a scavenger, the little scout ship that Roger Hunter had brought out from Mars on his last journey. While Greg maneuvered the Dutchman into the empty landing rack below the scavenger on the hull of the orbit ship, Johnny scanned the darkness round them through the viewscope, a frown wrinkling his forehead. "'Do you see anybody?' Tom asked. "'Not a sign. But I'm really looking for other rocks.' I can't see three that aren't too far away, but one of them may have claim marks. This one must have been the only one Roger was working on. They stared at the ragged surface of the planetoid. Raw veins of metallic ore cut through it with streaks of color. But most of the sun side showed only the dull gray of iron and granite. There was nothing unusual about the surface that Tom could see. Could there be anything on the dark side? Could be, Johnny said. We'll have to go over it foot by foot. But first, we should go through the orbit ship and the scavenger. If the patrol ship missed anything, we want to know it. The interior of the orbit ship was dark. It spun slowly on its axis, giving them just enough weight so that they could not float free whenever they moved. Their boots clanged on the metal decks as they climbed up the curving corridor toward the control cabin. Johnny threw a light switch, and they stared around them in amazement. The cabin was a shambles. Everything that was not bolted down had been ripped open and thrown aside. Greg whistled through his teeth. The Major said the patrol crew had gone through the ship, but he didn't say they'd wrecked it. They didn't, Johnny said grimly. No patrol ship would ever do this. Somebody else has been here since. He turned to the control panel, flipped switches, checked gauges. Hydrophonics are all right. Atmosphere is still good. We can take off these helmets. Fuel looks all right. Storage holds. He looked at his head. They weren't looting, but they were looking for something, all right. Let's look around and see if they missed anything. It took them an hour to survey the wreckage. Not a compartment had been missed. Even the mattress on the acceleration cots had been torn open. The spring stuffing tossed about helter-skelter. Tom went through the lock into the scavenger. The scout ship, too, had been searched, rapidly but thoroughly. There was no sign of anything that Roger Hunter might have found. Back in the control cabin, Johnny was checking the ship's logs. The old entries were on microfilm, stored on their spools near the reader. More recent entries were still recorded on tape. From the jumbled order, there was no doubt that the marauders had examined them. Johnny ran through them nevertheless, but there was nothing of interest. Routine navigational data, 
a record of the time of contact with the asteroid, a log of preliminary observations on the rock, nothing more. The last tape recorded, the call schedule Roger Hunter had set up with the patrol, a routine precaution used by all miners to bring help if for some reason they should fail to check in on schedule. There was no hint in the log of any extraordinary discovery. Are any tapes missing? Greg wanted to know. Doesn't look like it. There's one here for each day period. I wonder, Tom said. Dad always kept a personal log. You know, a sort of diary on microfilm. He peered into the film storage bin, checked through the spools. Then, from down beneath the last row of spools, he pulled out a slightly smaller spool. Here's something our friends missed, I bet. It was not really a diary, just a sequence of notes, calculations, and ideas that Roger Hunter had jotted down and microfilmed from time to time. The entries on the one spool went back for several years. Tom fed the spool into the reader, and they stared eagerly at the last few entries. A series of calculations covering several pages, but with no notes to indicate what exactly Roger Hunter had been calculating. "'Looks like he was plotting an orbit,' Greg said. "'But what orbit, and why?' nothing here to tell it must have been important though or dad wouldn't have filmed the pages tom said anything else another sheet with more calculations then a short paragraph written in roger hunter's hurried scrawl no doubt now what it is the words said wish johnny would hear show him a real bonanza but he'll know soon enough if and they stared at the scribbled and uncompleted sentence then johnny coombs let out a whoop I told you he found something, and he found it here, not somewhere else. Hold it, Greg said, peering at the film reader. There's something more on the last page, but I can't read it. Tom blinked at the entry. Interjovum and martum, plantum interposui, he read. He scratched his head. That's Latin, and it's famous, too. Kepler wrote it back before the asteroids were discovered. Between Jupiter and Mars, I will put a planet. Greg and Johnny looked at each other. I don't get it, Greg said. Dad told me about that once, Tom said. Kepler couldn't understand the long jump between Mars and Jupiter, when Venus and Earth and Mars were so close together. He figured there ought to be a planet out there, and he was right in a way. There wasn't any one planet, unless you call Ceres a planet. But it wasn't just empty space between Mars and Jupiter, either. The asteroids were here. But why would Dad be writing that down? Greg asked. And what has it got to do with what he found out here? He snapped off the reader switch angrily. I don't understand any of this, and I don't like it. If Dad found something out here, where is it? And who tore this ship apart after the patrol ship left? Probably the same ones that caused the accident in the first place, Johnny said. But why did they come back? Greg protested. If they killed Dad, they must have known what he'd found before they killed him. You'd think so, Johnny conceded. Then why take the risk of coming back here again? Maybe they didn't know, Tom said thoughtfully. What do you mean? I mean maybe they killed him too soon. Maybe they thought they knew what he'd found and where it was, and then found out that they didn't after all. Maybe Dad hid it. Johnny Coombs shook his head. No way a man can hide an oar strike. But suppose Dad did, somehow, and whoever killed him couldn't find it. It would be too late to make him tell them. They'd have to come back and look again, wouldn't they? and from the way they went about it, it looks as though they weren't having much luck. Then whatever Dad found would still be here somewhere, Greg said. That's right. But where? There's nothing on this ship. Maybe not, Tom said, but I'd like to take a look at that asteroid before we give up. 
They paused in the big ore-loading dock to reclamp their pressure-suit helmets, and looked down at the jagged chunk of rock a hundred yards below them. In the lock they had found scooters, the little one-man propulsion units so commonly used for short-distance work in space, but decided not to use them. They're clumsy, Johnny said, and the bumper units in your suits will do just as well for this distance. He looked down at the rock. I'll take the center section. You each take an edge and work in. Look for any signs of work on the surface, chisel marks, murexide charges, anything. What about the dark side? Greg asked. If we want to see anything there, we'll either have to rig up lights or turn the rock around, Johnny said. Let's cover this side first and see what we come up with. He turned and leaped from the airlock, moving gracefully down toward the surface, using the bumper to guide himself with the short bursts of compressed CO2 from the nozzle. Greg followed, pushing off harder and passing Johnny halfway down. Tom hesitated. It looked easy enough, but he remembered the violent nausea of his first few hours of freefall. Finally, he gritted his teeth and jumped off after Greg. Instantly, he knew he had jumped too hard. He shot away from the orbit ship like a bullet. The jagged asteroid surface leapt up at him. Frantically, he grabbed for the bumper nozzle and pulled the trigger, trying to break his fall. He felt the nozzle jerk in his hand, and then, abruptly, he was spinning off in a wild tangent from the asteroid head over heels. For a moment it seemed that the asteroid orbit ship stars were all wheeling crazily around him. Then he realized what had happened. He fired the bumper again, and went spinning twice as fast. The third time he timed the blast, aiming the nozzle carefully, and the spinning almost stopped. He fought down nausea, trying to get his bearings. He was three hundred yards out from the asteroid, almost twice as far from the orbit ship. He stared down at the rock as he moved slowly away from it. Before, from the orbit ship, he had been able to see only the bright side of the huge rock. Now he could see the sharp outline of the darkness across one side. But there was something else, peering into the blackness beyond the light line on the rock. He snapped on his helmet lamp, aimed the spotlight beam down to the dark rock surface. Johnny and Greg were landing now on the bright side, with Greg almost out of sight over the horizon. But Tom's attention was focused on something he could see only now as he moved away from the asteroid surface. His spotlight caught it, something bright and metallic, completely hidden on the dark side, lying in close to the surface but not quite on the surface. Then suddenly Tom knew what it was. The braking jets of a Class I Ranger, crouching beyond the reach of sunlight in the shadow of the asteroid. Swiftly he fired the bumper again, turning back toward the orbit ship. His hand went to the speaker switch, but he caught himself in time. Any warning shouted to Greg or Johnny would certainly be picked up by the ship. But he had to give warning somehow. He tumbled into the airlock, searching for a flare in his web belt. It was a risk. The ranger ship might pick up the flash, but he had to take it. He was unscrewing the fuse cap from the flare when he saw Greg and Johnny leap up from the asteroid surface. Then he saw what had alarmed them. Slowly the ranger was moving out from its hiding place behind the rock. Tom reached out to catch Greg as he came plummeting into the lock. There was a flash from the ranger's side, and Johnny Coombs' voice boomed in his earphones. Get inside. Get the lock closed fast. Hurry up. We can't waste a second. Johnny caught the lip of the rock, dragged himself inside frantically. They were spinning, the airlock door closed, when they heard the thundering explosion, felt the ship lurch under their feet, and all three of them went crashing into the deck. End of Gold in the Sky Part 2 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceovers by Kirk.com.